I think we can often make a mistake of thinking of sila. We take the precepts and and it's kind of done and you know we do it this once or twice a week and and we can think it's something that we sort of get in place. Maybe we've had a relationship with uh, this understanding, this orientation of our lives for quite some time and, and we sort of set it aside, it's taken care of in a way. And, and we, we see it as, as something that's sort of, you know, a, a preliminary or foundational practice. We get it in place as an aid to a support for our meditation, you know, and it keeps us out of jail so we can come spend time at the forest refuge. So it has that very practical application in our lives. But, and, and there is a sense that this, this foundation of sila is, is crucial and, and there is no way that our practice will actually go to real depth if this is not in place in our lives. And a mind that is truly free of remorse and worry about actions that we have done, harm that has been caused, that the more we can um, free the mind of these energies of remorse and worry in regarding our context, conduct, this, this does uh, support the meditation so clearly and directly. And of course, this is a, is a big part of the function of this in our lives. But if we see it only as this, I think it's very limiting. It's too narrow a view and it doesn't touch the actually the power and the potentially liberating aspect of paying attention to our conduct in this way, paying attention to how we live, living ethically. And in my direct experience, my understanding through practice is that our um, relationship to Sila, our understanding of it is in a state of being constantly deepened and refined as we, as our practice unfolds and as we walk this path. And it, it's woven into the fabric of the practice at every step of the way. And its power, the potential power of it in our lives is huge. Last February, I was teaching for uh, the month at Spirit Rock, I have a month, two month long retreats, one in February, one in March. And, and I was teaching with uh, a friend and colleague, teacher of mine, Carol Wilson. Some of you may know Carol, and she agreed to let me interview her when I was preparing a talk. It was uh, um, getting ready and I, she, she was actually lying on the floor. So this is a, a, a quotation from Carol Wilson from the reclining posture. And I was, I was preparing a talk on um, dana, on generosity, but I asked her in a very broad way about dana and sila, as, uh, which are seen often as preliminary practices in the model of dana, sila, bhavana, which is one way of holding the path. See, dana, generosity, sila, ethical conduct, and bhavana, mind development, mind culture. So these are Carol's words when I asked her about this. She said, Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. If one were just to practice Donna and Sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, 
one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. It's all about purification. The pure mind sees Nibbana. So I, I really thought this was a great, um, a great teaching in this. And the, the, the key, of course, in this, what she said is that it's the intention, if one were to undertake these practices with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, to really learn, that that, that potential, if we, if we bring that intention to anything in our lives, but especially something so basic as how we live, its potential to open the mind to liberation is is really there very directly. And living ethically, living with this intention to um, really um, create, sustain, nurture harmony in our lives in the world, this has a a beautiful um, power to uplift the mind and heart. It lifts us up. It beautifies and purifies the mind and heart. And there's a place where the Buddha, in talking about generosity, said one should practice this with the understanding that this is an adornment for the mind. And I, th- I see sila in the same way. We adorn, beautify, purify the mind and heart through these practices. And this is the path of purification. And this is a, is a, very, um, a very big part of that. In a way, it's the whole of it. And you know, there's times, I've been a yogi for a long time and I practice here just like you are in other places, you know. I'm, I'm a yogi who sometimes sits up here and I do this. I'm in this role some of the time. And, and sometimes I don't impress myself as a yogi very much, some of the time. You know, and that's just perception and be careful if any of you have that kind of thing coming into your mind. But sometimes I reflect on, on the fact that for a long time now I've had a very deep relationship with uh, with the sila, with how I conduct my life. And it's, it's a beautiful and powerful thing. And sometimes when I bring that to mind, it lifts me up out of um, things that I fall into around my perceptions of my practice. And it, um, it has a huge power this way. It's good to reflect on the beauty and goodness of this, to actually bring it to mind. And, and our mind through this, understanding and our deepening relationship to this, our mind becomes our friend and ally in a way that often it isn't, or we don't relate to it that way. I was thinking earlier today about about coming here, getting to come here in this role, in any role, and what a blessing that is in my life to be able to come and spend time in a place like this. And, and I was thinking about, you know, the intention behind this place, behind IMS and the Forest Refuge as part of that. The intention is to create a place that's a place of safety, a sanctuary, a refuge. This is called the Forest Refuge, where anyone who's interested and the conditions come together, that, that one can come here to uh, do this amazing practice. This place exists for the sole purpose of providing a place where people can come and undertake this exploration of of the deepest truths of life and what it means to be human. And and the idea here is that we're we're heading towards happiness and peace. Now that is pretty cool. 
that is a great thing in the world to have a place that is dedicated to that intention. And the fact that we are able to come here, that it's not a case of random chance, you know, the luck of the draw. The fact that we have the, the chance to be able to come and spend time here and do this practice is um, the result of some very wholesome karma. The fruits of very wholesome past actions coming, coming to bear. And no matter how you tend to hold that, there's something worth reflecting on. You know, it's rare. Places like this are rare. And the chance to come here is very rare. All the conditions that you have, the opportunity, the interest, the support, all the conditions in one's life that allow this to take place. You know, and we can be careful that we don't take it for granted because we can easily do that. So this chanting we did tonight, you know, it, we get down, I talked a lot about the precepts, but there, there are other parts to it. We start with this homage. Namotasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Sammasambuddhasa. We start with this. You know, we don't think most of us about paying homage. You know, we don't talk this way. None of us probably very rarely would we say, excuse me, I, I want to go pay homage when we're with our friends or something. We don't, we don't think of paying homage to something, but these are the words, homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. You know, what, what does it mean to pay homage? And when I come in, I bow to this Buddha statue, I bow to the, the Kuan Yin on my way in. And some of you may have the, the um, custom of bowing or holding the hands in, in this beautiful Anjali Mudra, this uh, posture at the heart of this, it's said to be a, represent a, a lotus bud that might open. That's this mudra. And it's a gesture of respect. This Anjali means respect. We may have some something in our lives. This may be part of our habit and something we do. It may be meaningful. We may see others doing it and it's not something we do and we wonder what's up with it. And, you know, maybe it's, again, can become kind of a, an automatic thing that we do, you know, if we're a good Buddhist, whatever that is. You know, we're supposed to bow and especially at the forest refuge and it looks good and the teacher will at least think I'm, I'm cool if I bow. And, you know, what, what do we bow to? And, and we have this thing, you know, we're not bowing to this sculpture. I mean, it's a nice wood carving if you like that sort of thing and maybe you like it or don't or you find it beautiful or you, you don't. Or the, the Kuan Yin, you know, you may say, well, I've seen better ones or that's a great one or I wish it was bigger or all the things we might think about it. And there's not intrinsic value in these things, certainly not enough to start bowing to it for that reason. So it's a symbol, right? And that's obvious. We bow to what it symbolizes. And, and this is an obvious thing, an obvious understanding that we, we have. And yet it's worth really thinking about what, what, is, what is it that we bow to then? What's worth bowing to? And so traditionally, one of the ways we can think of that, what these things symbolize, 
is what's called the triple gem. This is one, one thing that we think of. We bow to the, the triple gem. And that goes to the second part of the, before we get to the precepts, we do the refuges. Refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. This is the triple gem. Oh, that sounds great, triple gem. I like the sound of that. What's that up? What's that about? Why is it a gem? Why do we do it three times? You know, there's something we want to make sure. We don't do it just once or twice. We, we do things in threes and we're just being really thorough. There's some reason for that thoroughness, perhaps. Right? The Buddha doesn't mess around. It's like with metta. Just in case all beings doesn't get everyone in there, you get a lot of other possible categories when you do the practice, right? All living ones, all that breathe, any that happen to have a personality. You know, just in case, you want to make sure you cover all your bases in these practices. And this is true with the refuges. So, so what, is, what, what, what does it mean? What, this idea, this is a forest refuge. This place has this name. What is refuge? You know, we think of, think of it, 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 it brings up the connotation of a place of safety, like a safe harbor, you could say, that's a refuge, place where it's safe to go, place where we can relax. So where, where we can rest the heart, you could say. Where is a safe place? You know, in a world that's unpredictable, mostly out of our control and in state of constant change and flux, what, where can we find safety? Where can we find refuge? Where do we look for that? And so the first of the, of the triple gem, the refuge in Buddha, I go for refuge to the Buddha. It's said that after his enlightenment and after he spent time in the area of the Bodhi tree, that the Buddha, uh, when he set off on, on his journey to uh, the place where he gave his first teaching, where he, he gave the Dhamma Chaka Pavatna Sutta at Sava at uh, Sarnath, he was walking down the road and he looked good, you know, newly enlightened being, glowing countenance, looked very cool. And, and there was, uh, he ran, came across someone on the road and the person said, well, are you, who are you? What are you? Are you a god? Are you some kind of deity? And the Buddha said, I am awake. That was his answer. And the word Buddha, the root Bud, is, is the word for awake. So maybe Buddhists are awakists. How about that? We're awakists. That would be a kind of a nice way of thinking of being a Buddhist. My religion is wakefulness. So this is a possibility of refuge in Buddha. One way we might hold that is, is refuge in this possibility to be awake. And that is a place of safety for us because it's always possible. It doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter that things are unpredictable and always changing. We can be awake in the moment. This is always a possibility for us to wake up. And this leads to something really important to remember, remind ourselves. I think even if we've been practicing for a long, long time, it's good to remind ourselves that um, there's nothing that arises in the flow of our experience, in what we can know through the senses, in our universe, 
There's nothing that arises that we cannot be mindful of, that we cannot bring awareness to. And there's nothing that arises that cannot serve as a vehicle for the arising of insight. So in this regard, there's nothing that falls outside the scope of our practice. Now we have preferences, the things that we, the objects we like to be mindful of. Yeah, I'll take this one and I don't want that one. Which are the ones we want? Generally, we want the ones that have a pleasant feeling, have qualities of calm or happiness or whatever. But it actually, from the point of view of the meditative practice and the meditative experience, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we're aware of. We can be awake in regards to any of it. And this leads to one of the hardest things for us to to learn and, and keep remembering in, as we practice is that um, it's so easy to lose sight of this, but it's not about experiences, having certain experiences or getting to beautiful sublime states, special blissful states. And you know, that's not to say that sometimes we don't have powerful experiences and, and, and do find the mind um, opening to very blissful, beautiful states or states of vast power or energy, that happens. Maybe some of us saying, well, it's never happened to me. I don't know. But, but these things do happen at times and they, they can bring uh, energy and they be inspiring and they, they can bolster our faith because we feel like, well, something's happening here. And the practice is working, but, but as inspiring as it may be, in the moment, certain experiences, it's really crucial that we remind ourselves that, that ultimately this path is about freedom in any moment, no matter what's happening. Because if we're practicing for a special state or experience, what happens, maybe we get it, maybe we never get it, or maybe we do get it, but it doesn't stick around. <laughs> what happens when it goes? If our freedom, our happiness, our peace, whatever is dependent on it being there, we are setting ourselves up for, for never being able to achieve that in a lasting way. There's no real freedom because any state that, that arises, if it, if it has the nature to arise, it will have the nature to pass away. That's just the way it is. So this refuge in wakefulness can help lead us to this deeper kind of understanding. It helps us to let go of our attempts to uh, control experience so that it meets my criteria of what I think is okay or acceptable or worth paying attention to. It helps us to unhook that and it leads us to it to deeper kinds of considerations. And then we have refuge in Dhamma. This is the second part of the triple gem. We bow to the Dhamma. What's this? There's a reflection on the qualities of the Dhamma. And, and this word has more than one meaning. One meaning is if we say Buddha Dhamma, it's the teachings of the Buddha. 
And in this reflection, it says, Soakato Bhagavata Dhammo, the teachings that are well expounded by the Blessed One, the Awakened One. And, and this may have some meaning for us. There, there's this wealth of teachings that have come down through the ages. And there's a lot of really um, beautiful understanding there that's, that's presented in all kinds of different ways. And, and it's, we can draw on that. We can find um, beauty and power and meaning in the, what the Buddha spoke about, what he said. And, and it can be a source of, of information and inspiration for us. So this is a place where we may find a kind of uh, the safety in, in being held by this richness of this tradition and the teachings. That is a possible understanding of refuge in Dhamma. But this word Dhamma also means it has a much broader meaning. It means something like the law or the truth. I think of it as like the law of nature. So in this way, Dhamma, you could say, is pointing to the truth of the way things really are. That's a real refuge because that's something we can also know we can know in this moment, it's like this. This is the way it is now. This is the truth of this moment. And that again is a place of, of safety, a place where we can uh, take our stand because it doesn't matter again what, what it is that's going on. We can know it as it is. It doesn't matter that it's changing. So if we take refuge in Dhamma in this way, then we take our stand on the truth of things, on reality, on deeper kinds of truths, rather than our ideas about how it is or how it should be. We can know always it's like this. This is how it is now. And this, again, leads us to deeper understandings. Because if we see Dhamma as the truth of the way things really are, not the way they may appear. <laughs> this goes below the surface of things to, to something that's more universal, to more universal or common uh, qualities or characteristics of all phenomena, no matter what they are, whether, whether we like them or not, or um, pleasant or unpleasant or any of that. So for example, it leads us to encounter the truth of impermanence, of change. This takes us to the heart of what the Buddha was pointing at. So much in, the, in everything he said is, is pointing to understanding. This is the truth of things. Things are in a state of change. All things are impermanent. And connecting and really opening to this and really understanding this is, um, in a way, the whole path seems to flow from this understanding. And the classic description of a moment of awakening that one finds in the suttas, in the texts, the stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus, that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. This is, now we're, it's an attempt to point at and as something that's hard to point at, but this is the, the language that's used. The mind and heart open to that truth in a, in a deeper way in the deepest kind of way.
that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. So refuge in Dhamma, in this aspect of the truth of the way things really are, it leads us directly to this. And, and opening to impermanence opens the mind to uh, dispassion, to letting go, to liberation. And then refuge in Sangha, the third part of the triple jam, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Traditionally, there's, uh, it refers to, on one level, the, what's called the Arya Sangha, the noble Sangha, the, the followers who, of, the, of the Buddha who, who put what he taught into practice, realized what the fruits of that, you know, the noble disciples of the Buddha over, over this long period of time now, the noble disciples in this way. Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango, the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, who have really done it, taken it to its fullness. And there may be inspiring figures that historically that we read about, maybe reading about the Buddha and his, his followers, that may touch us. There may be more modern examples of this that we've read about or, or maybe even had the chance to meet awakened beings in the world who, who just through their, for their being on some way, to some degree at least, they demonstrate um, what the, a teaching that the Buddha said that is really important to bring into mind. He said, if it wasn't possible to do this, I wouldn't ask you to. But since it is possible, I ask you to, to make the effort to try. You know, because we can, we can think, well, you know, it's what he was teaching, it's, it's out there way far away for special beings, maybe who were around when the Buddha was there because there's all these stories, you know, you listen to the, a Dhamma talk by the Buddha and you get enlightened, right? And it doesn't seem to be happening all that often. But this is a reality and if it weren't possible, there would be no point, but the Buddha, it was very clear. This is possible for beings, not just for special beings. But there's another aspect of, of this idea of refuge in Sangha I'd like to touch on that has to do with a connection to, to our aspirations, our higher aspirations, and to a kind of shared intention that we bring when we come to a place like this to do a period of practice. And this is an intention that, that we share with, with seekers down through the ages in all traditions. It's not just us who have this intention to try to understand and, and uh, to find a true or lasting happiness or peace. And this movement towards goodness. And I think it's really important to have some connection, maybe a regular kind of reflection on, on something that we hold as an aspiration to really check in with why, why, one, why you came? <laughs> what are you doing here? What's it, what's it for? What's it about? Not maybe as a goal, as a fixed goal to attain, but maybe as a sense of direction. You know, goals, 
may, may not stay the same. And as our understanding changes, maybe goals, something that we held as a goal, it might not be the same, but, but we can have a sense of steering in the direction of freedom, of peace, of happiness. Something that we're, we're making our compass heading. We're gonna steer in that direction and we get a sense for what might lead in that direction. And you know, this shared intention, when we come here, if you can imagine, if you were the only one here, any one of you, it would be a really different experience. Some of you might say, yes, <laughs> give me that, <laughs> get them out of here. <laughs> but if we were the only one here, it would be really different. There is a power to the, the intention that we bring here, without a doubt. You know, the Buddha talked about this path is swimming upstream, swimming against the stream. And if we're swimming against the stream, it's really nice to look over and see someone else who's swimming along with us. How you doing? Still going? Yeah, still going. Really, really powerful support and a kind of refuge there. And you know, one a teacher who's, who's taught here before, um, the monk teacher friend, spoke about Sangha, he used these beautiful words. He said, we create this marvelous organism when we come together with this shared intention. This, he called it a heart inclination towards, towards love and wisdom, towards kindness and freedom. And he used this image that I really love, and this room is a good place to um, use this image. He said, it's like individuals looking through different windows into a common space and there's windows on all sides here and and you know we all look through our own window right we have our own personal history and our own perceptions and and the, the way we look at things is is personal in in a certain way there's that which which is individual and unique and yet we're all looking into something uh, that's bigger than any individual story into something more universal something more um, common to all of us, something more timeless. When we bring this intention to understand, to practice these liberation teachings. And so we can hold Sangha in these ways in terms of an aspiration, a shared intention, the possibility that's there that we all can realize the fruits of what the Buddha was teaching. And so this, this leads us again to something that's deeper than, than the surface of things. It, it leads us to looking at, at where we might actually be able to find happiness or freedom. You know, most of us who would spend time like this, we have some motivation that has to do with a longing for greater connection or, or some desire that moves us towards peace or freedom or happiness we might all maybe use different words, but, but we all want some kind of deep happiness. You know, all beings want to be happy. We share this with all beings. And you know, so much of the stuff that we and other people get up to that is just seems like messing us up and all the shenanigans we get up to, it's all born of that movement of heart. It's just that we sometimes and a lot of other people are, can be really confused about what might get us to happiness, but that's underneath it all. All the nonsense we get up to, 
it's, it's that movement of heart is underneath there in some way. And so we're all looking for happiness, but where are we looking, you know? Are we looking in the right place? You know, if we're not looking in the right place, we're not very likely to find it. But if we look at refuge in the triple gem in this, in this broad way, if we hold that very broadly and really investigate where are we looking for refuge? Where am I looking for happiness? Where am I looking for a path that might lead to peace, safety? This can actually help us to find something that might actually be going there. <laughs> we might actually start looking in the right place and not in all of the, the things that we can tend to. If we look in our lives, look, where, what do we get up to in our quest for happiness? All the different stuff we get pulled in these different ways that are dangled out there. And look what's dangled out there in the culture. <laughs> this is it. Get this thing. Have this experience. And we get, we get seduced by that stuff. You know, that is very strong, that conditioning. And there's one other aspect of this idea of refuge I want to touch on that is implicit in everything I've said, but, but I think it's worth highlighting specifically. And that's the aware mind itself. This quality of awareness itself, which that's got to be there if you're going to be awake and, and, and rest in the truth of the moment and understand the power of the intention in one's life. Awareness needs to be part of that. It's there. Those things don't happen without this. But take a moment just right now and notice the quality of the aware mind, the knowing mind right now. Simple, feeling the body sitting, the hearing. It's great. It's so simple. And we don't notice it and we take it for granted and we just don't even notice it. But this is a huge, this is, a, this is the real deal here. With this, everything is possible. Without mindful awareness, nothing is possible. With it, everything is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. We're just going on automatic. And, this, and it's simple and it's there right now. It's there right now and right now. And so this is, a, is an aspect of this idea of refuge we, that we really start to learn more and more with as our practice deepens. As we, that's a refuge. We take refuge in that. That's always possible. And we start to see that awareness, this knowing quality, that it's not affected by what, what's known, that there's a purity there. The awareness of anger isn't angry. The awareness of fear is not afraid. This awareness, it can hold anything. It's not changed by it. 
And so we start to rest in, in a sense of refuge in, in this quality of awareness itself. And this leads to a truth and an understanding that's always there, was always there, always will be there. There's an understanding, a voice in our heart that, that shows up and it's quiet and we miss it, but it knows already. It already knows the truth because the truth is always here. If it's not always here, it's not the real deal. We're swimming in Nibbana, folks. This is from uh, a book called Awareness Itself by a, a teacher from Thailand named Ajahn Phuong Jotiko. You have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions, of the conventions it holds to be true. So you just have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. But as we all know, this isn't easy. If this was easy, we'd all be enlightened. We could go home. Clearly, it's not. Right? A lot of us have put a lot of time in. More practice is required. That's what I notice when I go on retreat. It's clear to me more practice is required. This involves a radical shift in our understanding and how we approach and look at things. And we have some well-worn grooves in, in our uh, minds and hearts, and we tend to go down them. And we're not going to change that quickly. You know, there's a deep retraining and a, and a, a kind of letting go that isn't going to come, doesn't come easily. And, and we, when we come, when we do this practice, we meet these minds and bodies and hearts in this very direct and intimate way. I mean, that's, our practice is the practice of deepening intimacy with this mind and body and heart, this whole process. We can see it. It's, this is what we're doing here. And it's not easy. It may sometimes feel like the hardest thing we could ask ourselves to do. And some of us, we feel, we were under, we find out that we've been spending most of our life trying to avoid doing this because it's, it's not easy. And it's, so it takes a lot of patience and a lot of kindness. And, you know, everything's going to come up. Deep patterns in our personalities that we didn't even know were there sometimes. And it's, it's hard to be with at times. For sure it is. And coming face to face with ourselves, it reveals deep habits of mind, of desire and aversion, resistance and judgment and denial 
and it's it's what we're here for, but it isn't always easy. And um, it takes so much strength of heart and courage and patience, perseverance, and and I think kindness above all. We have to have this. These are the words of the Buddha. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle. Make it our basis. Stabilize it, steady and consolidate it. Exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. And I read this quotation because I love this image of making this our vehicle. We can have this awareness, let it ride on the vehicle of kindness, of friendliness, of love. Let's put it on there and let that be its vehicle. If we can build, bring these together so that this awareness rides on the vehicle of kindness and care and compassion, the vehicle of love, of friendliness, that's our best bet. That will be such an aid to us. And there's a simple way we can start to touch this. We don't have to all suddenly start, you know, doing metta full time and some formal practice that we think of. We might. But we can touch into it in a simple, gentle way through connecting with our willingness to show up for the moment just as it is. Just right in that. There's metta right there. If we're willing to, we can find that quality of care on and caring for our life by, by being here for it and by not abandoning ourselves when it's hard. We're not gonna abandon ourselves when it's difficult. So I'll leave you with my, one of my very most favorite poems. It's a meta wish for you all. This is called the Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet and let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and may your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So let's just uh, keep sitting quietly. So quiet here. We'll keep sitting quietly for just a minute. And then I'll ring the bell and we'll do uh, the chant of the, the verses of sharing of blessings. <clears throat> 